Tonight, let's open our Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll study verses 8 and 9, two of perhaps the most well-known verses in the letter to the Ephesians, and it could even be that these are two of the most well-known verses in, in all of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul emphasizes and elaborates upon our position in Christ. In verses 1 through 10, he explains our new position in Christ as individuals. Our new position in Christ individually, including, and don't miss this in the first three verses, where we stood prior to our salvation. That's important, where we stood prior to our salvation, before we assumed this new position by grace through faith. And the key idea in the first ten verses is going to be grace. In verses 11 through 22, he's going to outline our new position corporately, including the significance of this corporate position with regard to the function of unity in the body of Christ. So key phrase in the first ten verses is grace. Key phrase in verses 11 through 22, the key idea, rather, is unity. You remember verses 1 through 3, particularly verse 1 of chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In verses 2 and 3, it, out, it, it unpacks that first verse. And we said at that time that before we can ever fully appreciate grace, which will be the primary subject in verses 1 through 10, but especially in verses 4 through 10, before we ever fully appreciate grace, we've got to, we've got to be told or reminded again of where we, where we were, from whence we came. We were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins with no possibility of ever attaining salvation on our own. We were hopeless. We were helpless. And once Paul explains that, once he, once he just like he did in the book of Romans, he gave us the bad news first and then the good news. The bad news is that in Romans, the immoral person needs a Savior, the moral person needs a Savior, and the Jew needs a Savior. Do you remember that? And then he talked about justification by faith. Well, he's going to do something in a, in a, of a microcosm of that here. He tells us just exactly how hopeless we were, and then probably the two sweetest words in all of this letter, in verse 4, but God. See, this is where we were, this is how lost we were, this is how hopeless and helpless we were, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. So this is a very serious contrast. He's rich in mercy. And then in the next few verses, there are specific actions that we find that we are a part of, based upon this rich mercy. First, he made us alive together with him in Christ. He raised us up with him, and he seated us with Christ. So these verses help to remind us that we are in a positional relationship with the creator of the universe. But that's not all. It's important, and it's central to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but that's not all. We're also in a personal relationship. With the God of the universe. So it's, it's positional, but it's not merely positional. It's also personal. And it doesn't get any better than that. We, we have a personal relationship with God, the God of the universe, through Jesus Christ, his son. In our time together last week, we studied primarily verse 7. And maybe we were surprised to find out that we are trophies of God's grace and kindness. 
just like you may visit a university, a sports athletic department, or even a high school, and they may have a trophy case out in the foyer or the lobby of their school, and all these trophies that are monuments to them winning a particular conference or district in football or basketball or baseball or volleyball, whatever it may be, track. Sometimes they even have names of people listed up there. I'll have you know that I am in the Hall of Fame for Natrona County High School, 1974 football team, all state, all whatever it was. It's still up there as far as I know. It's a trophy in, in, in that sense. At least it better still be up there. It was last time I, I looked. But, but, uh, but, but in, a, in a much bigger way, we are trophies of God's grace. And that's not just for now. You see, someday they're going to take that down. That, that old placard will get faded and, and it'll, be, it'll be a distant memory. But not with us with regard to being God's trophy. We're going to be his trophy forever and forever and forever. So anytime, anytime one of us passes somebody else in heaven, we're going to be able to look at that other person or we may be able to look at our reflection in a mirror or a pool of clear water and we're going to look down and be able to say, you know what? I'm a trophy of God's grace and kindness. I'm a reminder of that for all of eternity. You will never have to be concerned with forgetting how we got there. You'll never have to be concerned with that. We, we ourselves are the reminder of that. And now, after having studied those things, we come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And I said a moment ago, perhaps the most well-known verses of this epistle Maybe even the most well-known verses or some of the most well-known verses in all the New Testament. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. I, I say these are perhaps the most well-known verses in the Bible, but, but not necessarily for everybody. It was several years back, and I was still on the rotation, I guess, and and some, some very, very fine people came to my home. They came two by two, and they were, they were of the Jehovah's Witness group. I always invite them into my home. Now, I'm not recommending that you do that, especially if you're a lady by yourself. I wouldn't invite anybody into my home, you know, for security reasons. But, but I pray for people to witness to all the time. So I thought, well, here are people that want to talk about spiritual things. I've got a few minutes, so let's do it. So I, I invited him in, and, and we, we talk. And in this, in this particular time, I'm, I'll never forget that, uh, at, at, well, after having dealt with Jehovah's Witnesses for uh, 30 years off and on in terms of interacting with them, I kind of know where they're going with certain things, so I try to, try to cut to the chase. I'm not going to talk about the military. I'm not going to talk about uh, the tran blood transfusions and all that stuff. That, those are all side issues. I'll talk about two things. One is Jesus Christ, who he was. And the second one, what he did and what is the significance of that for you. Those are the two things that I'll talk about. So uh, in this particular case, the, the old deity of Christ thing came up, and, and that's a kind of a side story. But, but with this particular group, I'll never forget it because I said, well, I said, how do you think in your, in, your, in your way of thinking, and I'm not saying this is reflective of all the Jehovah's Witnesses, but it's certainly of all the ones I've ever dealt with. Um, in, in your view, how do you become rightly related to God? And something about faith was mentioned, but immediately they took me to James and said, faith without works is dead, so therefore it's faith plus works. Now, now we, I talk about that so often that you might not realize there are people that actually believe that, that it's faith plus works. 
Matter of fact, there's a lot of people that believe that, not just in the Jehovah's Witness uh, group. And in fact, it's interesting that many of my Jehovah's Witnesses' friends, um, they, would, they would hold that salvation is by faith, by grace through faith plus works. And then all the while, in our conversations, they are really running down the church at Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, not understanding that that's exactly the same view. Exactly the same view. But anyway, it happened, and they did it, and I said, well, there's another verse that I want to take you to, but before I take you there, actually, there are a couple of the verses I want to take you to, but before I take you there, I said to these fine people, Wonderful people, people that are out there working hard, thinking they had to do that to earn their salvation. You realize they don't want to be there any more than you want to have to talk to them. They're trying to work their way to heaven. They feel like if they don't do that, they're not going. But I I said, do you believe there's any contradictions in the Bible? Well, of course not. No, we don't think there's any contradictions in the Bible. I said, okay, now that we've established that, that we both agree on that, let's go over to to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And I read them these verses. And I said, Within the scope of your view, how would you handle that? Not to mention the Titus passage, which is similar, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy, as he saved us. But how would you handle this? you know what their answer was? See, you know what? I've, I've never heard that passage before. Blew me away. The objectivity blew me away. The desire to learn blew me away. I was thrilled. I said, well, let's look at it. And we... we we parsed it, and we took a look at it, and, and we went over and over again. Not a result of works. Not a result of works. Very, very clear. Then we, of course, went to the Titus passage. Not a result of works. It's interesting. You don't, you don't necessarily have to be argumentative with people, but just show them and ask them, well, what, what would you do with this? And then, of course, if they take you down a rapture, well, now, now hold on, that's like they do with James. Now, that's not quite the context of James. You can go to that, but I wouldn't do that first. How do you do this? So while it's, uh, for many people, it's uh, among the most well-known verses in the Bible, not for everybody. So don't be, don't just assume when you speak to people about the gospel that, that they know anything about it at all. You're not going to insult them by starting at square one. And so this is, in many ways, square one. These verses, in my view, move straight to the heart of the Christian message. And in a sense, this is important. In a sense, these two verses are going to summarize the, all the verses that went before, at least in this chapter. I mean, yeah, in this chapter, chapter 2. These are somewhat of a summary set of verses, maybe even a, a climax to the paragraph. Although, having said that, let me tell you, these are not the last verses of this paragraph. Oftentimes we stop the paragraph here. Verse 10 that we'll study next week is actually the last verse of the paragraph. But in many ways, these are... A summary. What these verses tell us, first and foremost, is that salvation is a work of God. Salvation is a work of God. Now, we don't often do this, but uh, tonight it is, it is important. I don't typically um, present you with, with details of the Greek text unless it really matters. And this, these, these are two verses in the New Testament, particularly the end of verse 8, where there's, a, there's an issue in the Greek text that really, really matters. So I want you to hang in there with me. This is what, I don't expect you to be able to read this, but this is what the Greek text looks like. These are the, this is the rendering in Greek. Actually, if we were to just kind of walk through it quickly, and again, I, I'm not 
you don't have to try to remember this. A couple of you will know already. But, but this is Ephesians, actually Ephesians 2, 8 in the Greek text. Uh, this word here, which looks like, uh, like a Y-A-R, that, or Y-A-P, that's actually G-A-R, gar, in this, it comes before that, for, and then this, these two words here mean by means of grace. Hey, kalite, estin, for by means of grace you are, or you have been saved. Now here's our old friend. We talked about this in the, in the last couple of classes, and, and um, some of you really turned on by that, and then others were turned off by that, but but this is a perfect participle. That's why some of your Bibles, New American Standard, translate this, you have been saved. Some translate it, you are saved. And there are good reasons to do both. But you remember in this, with this perfect participle right here, for those of you on this side of the room, right here, this perfect participle considers an action that was completed in the past and has results that continue to the present time. Now, probably, with this word and the way that it's used in this rendering, it probably emphasizes more the, the action that is continuing to the present time, even than it does its past action. But the reason I bring that up is because some of your Bibles are going to translate that. You have been saved. For by grace, you have been saved. Others are going to translate it, for by grace, you are saved. It's not that the, that the editors of one version were a bunch of dummies, and the other ones were really, really smart. There, there are reasons why they had to make that choice, uh, the, the ones that were in charge of editing that. So there's a reason for that. Anyway, this is uh, a little bit more on this in a minute, but this is, that's the basic way that, that it begins. Now, here's, here's a way that you might be able to see it a little bit easier. Here's, in, in the green, you see what is, what is parallel. For by means of grace, for by means of grace. You, ha- you have been saved, and now here I translated it, you are saved, a perfectly legitimate way to do it. So salvation is a work of God. Grace, grace is the objective basis of salvation. Grace is the objective basis of salvation. Salvation is a work of God, and it's by means of grace. This phrase right here is called a dative of means. It's a, by means of grace. And again, I wouldn't tell you all this part unless it's really vital. You'll see why it's so vital in just a few moments. Grace is the objective basis of salvation. But then, moving on to the next phrase, diapestuos, it's through faith. It's by means of grace, but it's through faith. So the way we put that in theology is grace is the objective basis for salvation. Faith is the subjective means by which someone is saved. Okay, did you hear the two words, objective, subjective? Grace is the objective basis for salvation. Faith is the subjective means by which one is saved. Now, this may be new terminology to you. Don't be intimidated by it. We'll be covering it more than once. So if you can just kind of just let it, let it flow tonight. Grace is the objective basis of salvation. Faith is the subjective means by which one is saved. Later on, we're going to learn that human works play no part in the process. It's by grace, through faith, human works play no part in the process. Therefore, there is no objective basis for any human being 
becoming arrogant with, their res- with respect to their position, as Paul will put it in this letter, their position in Christ. Yes, we're in Christ. And I would assume everybody in this room tonight has trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, that they have placed their faith and their faith alone in Jesus Christ. If, if that is truly the case, if, if my assumption is correct, we're all in him. We're all in Christ. We're all going to heaven. But none of us, not a single one of us, has any reason to brag about that or to boast about that because it is not of ourselves. It is by grace through faith. The objective basis is grace. Now, the subjective means is through faith. There is a way of receiving this grace, and that's through faith. We'll talk about that in just a moment. For by means of grace you are saved through faith. The way that Robert Leitner puts this I think is interesting. Salvation is a work of God. Faith doesn't save anyone. Now that may, if you just stop that sentence there, you think, what is he talking about? Has he lost his mind? Well, read it through. Salvation is a work of God. Faith doesn't save anyone. God saves on the basis of faith. This is very, very important as a theological foundation to the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. It's not just like you can have faith and be saved or without God being part of the process. People try that all the time. You talk to people out there. There's all, people, all, all people have faith in something. They really do. Now, some of them have faith in themselves, in their own goodness to be able to save them. Some of them are having faith that there is no God at all, or if there is a God that he's just going to let me in because, because that's, he's just forgiving and loving in that way. So, Leitner's right. We need to be careful about this. God is the one who saves us. He is the one who rescues us. Not some ethereal concept of faith. God is the one who is personally rescuing you and me. But it's on the basis of faith. Harold Holner took this a little further. He said, the salvation that was purchased by Christ's death is universal in its provision. But it's not universal in its application. It's universal in its provision, but it's not universal in its application. God's grace is extended to everyone. At the cross, that grace is extended to all. So if it's extended to all, we may ask, then why are not all saved? Well, all are not saved because the benefits of salvation haven't been universally applied. They're universally available, but they haven't been universally applied. Now, again, I know I'm speaking in... in in fairly technical theological jargon this evening, but it's okay. We need to stretch ourselves every now and then. The death of Christ on the cross renders all men savable. But the death of Christ on the cross saves no one until that individual appropriates the benefits of that death by faith. So salvation is a work of God, Faith doesn't save anyone. God saves us on the basis of faith. Faith is the way that we receive that gift. If you want to picture it this way, God is is offering a gift to everyone. Doesn't matter how good they are. Doesn't matter how bad they are because we're all all bad as far as God's concerned. It doesn't matter what a righteous kind of life we may have lived before we came to Christ. We're all in the same boat. 
And this may shock you, but I mean it, and it's true. We were all equally as condemned as you pick the worst person that you can think of. Adolf Hitler, he seems to be the most popular pick. Before we came to salvation, we were equally as condemned as Adolf Hitler. And that may offend our sensibilities. Well, how could that be? You know, you've read of what he's done. But listen, you're either saved or you're not saved. And if you're not saved, then your sins haven't been forgiven and you are just as lost as Adolf Hitler. Every bit as condemned as him. And we need to realize, that's why Paul went through that in verses 1 through 3. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. I mean, how dead do you have to be to be dead? There really aren't degrees of being dead, are there? You're either dead or you're not. And this, of course, is speaking of spiritual death. And by no, in, in no way am I trying to make um, light of this process at all. It's a, very heavy, it's a very heavy thing. Again, the first word, gar, is explanatory, meaning that Paul is going to clarify that our salvation from the penalty of sin is an outworking of God's grace and is not a result of human effort. This is where the rubber meets the road in this passage. Or this is, if you prefer, this is where we've come to the crossroads in this passage. This is what really is the crossroads between people who would use the title Christian and the people who truly are Christian. Because there are many, many people around the world that are going to say, no, I'm saved by works. And then they're going to claim Christianity for themselves. And I have sad news for those folks. As well-meaning as they are, they, they, they crossed the road and then they made a wrong turn. If you have not trusted Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, apart from works, simply to coming to him with the empty hands of faith, you are not in the biblical sense in the Christian faith. Now, you may be in some sort of secular sense, but it's meaningless. And there are a lot of people out there that have redefined Christianity in such a way that really suits them. And they say, well, that, that's... That's how I feel about it. They speak about things like the love of God, but they would never mention the love of Christ. You know, that's, that's a person who is not in him. They're in something. They're in deep. They're in deep trouble because they don't even realize they have a problem. See, that kind of person is in deeper trouble than others because they don't even realize they're in, they're in a mess. Give me the person who's face down in the gutter on Bourbon Street in New Orleans any day to give the gospel to. They're going to be much easier to give it to them. Are they not? Because they know they've done nothing to earn God's favor. Give me the prisoner in the prison who's there because he's guilty of murder, and he'll listen to you or she'll listen to you quicker than someone who goes to church every Sunday but won't mention the love of Christ for fear of offending someone. See, so, so we are at a crossroads. This verse, these verses are a crossroads with regard to the entirety of the Christian faith. They're central to the Christian faith. Again, the words through faith denote the subjective means by which one is saved. Once again, the objective means, objective means is grace. That's God's part. The subjective means is faith. That's our responsibility. Our responsibility. Now, we don't call this a work. By definition, it's not a work. But God, in his sovereignty, God, because he's boss, God, because this is his plan, God, because he's the one that sent his son to pay the whole price, then that, wouldn't that make sense that he has the right to make the rules? He has the right to, to lay out what the responsibility that we have is? 
So since God did the whole thing himself, in his sovereignty, that means he's the boss, he decided that in order to enjoy the benefits of what he provided at Calvary, in order to enjoy the benefits, it's offered to everyone, but in order to enjoy the benefits, the individual must exercise faith. Now, not your mama, and not your daddy, or your grandparents. Sometimes I'll talk to people and say, you know, my mama went to church a lot. She used to take me to church when I was a little kid. That's not what I ask you. You see? I, I love, I'm, I'm glad you love your mama, but she can't get you into heaven. You, know, you have to make this decision yourself. You have to make the decision. And it's by grace through faith. Grace is God's part. Faith is our responsibility. If it's to be received, it can only be received the way that God set it up. We can't change the terms of this arrangement because we did nothing on the other side of the equation. Since he did it all, he has every right to say, this is the way that it will be received. And by the way, there's no merit in receiving it. Any more, any more than there would be merit in you and then you spending all afternoon making a dozen chocolate chip cookies and bringing them on a plate to me and say, here, Bruce, here's some cookies that I made for you. And me said, well, thank you for those cookies and receiving them. There's no merit in me saying thank you for the cookies. You did all the work. All I did was receive it. And so this is a responsibility. But it's not a work. You know, Paul uses the expression through faith or from faith in a salvation context over 20 times in his letters. This is not the only place. Over 20 times he comes back to this theme. And that's the way he expresses what the human responsibility is. We have but one responsibility. We don't have a hundred. Sometimes I see salvation uh, tracks and they've got a five-step process to receiving eternal life. I understand if they're talking about that a precondition of understanding that you need it in the first place. Okay, I'll give you that one. But after you understand that you need it, I can't think of five. I can only think of one. And that's faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. And, and various tracts will have the wildest things in there. Turn away from your sins. Promise not to do them anymore. Be baptized. Join a church. You know, all these things. All that are fine and good. But there's one condition that the Bible gives by grace through faith. Faith in this context, listen carefully, is not a work. See, that's what some people argue. Well, faith is a work. It's something you're doing, isn't it? So therefore, it must be a work. Well, no, it's not a work. And it's made clear that faith is not a work if you'll just read the next verse. <laughs> It's not of works. He said it's by faith, but it's not of works. So listen, if we just will read it, it's not that hard. The Bible wasn't written in such a way as that you have to have a Ph.D. in linguistics or in Greek or in, in theology to understand it. It was written in such a way as that a, a fisherman in Galilee could sit down and read it, who probably had very little education, and understand what it meant. Or... You, you take your pig. It, it was written, Francis Schaeffer used to say, it was written for the dock worker. Yes, it's, it's good that we have scholars. I, I never would put that down. I've spent most of my life learning the Word of God, and a, and a great portion of it uh, in, in postgraduate studies. But it's not that hard if we'll just let it speak for itself. So 
If you want to argue that faith is a work, you're arguing against this passage in its context. The very next verse says that it's, it's not. So if, if you want to argue that faith is a work on the basis of this passage, you're either missing the point of these verses or you're ignoring the point of these verses. I'm not really sure which one is worse, but either one is insulting the biblical message. Now, the Greek term pistis, now maybe you've heard this one before. The Greek term pistis, we had it in the previous slide, diapistuo. Uh, it's a different form of it. But the Greek word pistis is, is the word that's translated faith here. It's a very, very important New Testament word. It basically means trust or confidence. Trust or confidence that is placed in a person or in a thing, or actually in the ancient world, in the ancient context, it could be placed in the gods, with a little g. Faith in a, in a person, in a thing, or in, ex, in secular material, with regard to the gods, little g. Now, here's the problem. So many people have attempted to over-parse this very simple Greek word, to over-parse it, and to overparse, especially one of the English translations for this word, believe. You know, if I'm going to trust in something, I'm going to believe in it. They've tried to overparse it so much that they have, um, they've actually done damage to our understanding of the word. Really, faith is a perfectly good translation. When we get to, to uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 31, when we studied that passage, same word. You, you can almost hear it in the beginning of this. Pistuson epiton kurion iesun kai soseste su. Do you hear the first word, pistuson? Actually, that's a form of the word pistis. Pistuson, pistis. It's, it's, uh, it's, one's a noun, the, the other one there is a verb, but it's the same root. That's why in that, in that passage, oftentimes when I'm talking to people about it, instead of trying to believe on the Lord Jesus, I'll go ahead and, trans- I'll go ahead and, and, and help them to understand that. Trust the Lord Jesus as opposed to trusting yourself. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus as opposed to placing your faith in self. Because so many people will come back and say, well, what does that mean? I just have to believe that he existed? Well, yeah, well, you're not, you're not really saying a whole lot there because Will Durant, the agnostic historian, said that no serious historian doubts the historicity of Jesus Christ. So, no, we're not talking about the fact that a man named Jesus of Nazareth lived in the first century, the first part of the first century, and was crucified at the hands of the Romans Passover, either A.D. 30, 33, or 36. You're not saying anything by, by uh, saying, well, I'll acknowledge that he, he did it. Was there any significance to his crucifixion? Who was he? Are you placing your faith in him? Are you just acknowledging that he exists? Listen, to just acknowledge that he exists is not cutting it. There's something special about Jesus. You have to place your faith in him. That's why, Pistusom, uh, I, I translate that when I'm talking with people, Place your faith in Jesus. Put your trust in him. Um, And that's a perfectly legitimate translation. The next phrase, and this is not of yourselves, reinforces the idea, reinforces the idea that salvation is of God and not of human beings. But it's this next phrase in verse 8 that has caused so much ink to be spilled since the Protestant Reformation. And again, i, I got to tell you, it's really not that hard. And I'm, and I'm not trying to be, to be the least bit arrogant in saying that. I'm going to show you why it's not that hard. 
Uh, and this is, uh, we're going to go back to this Greek text. Don't worry about the words. Let's just, we're going to look at the colors right now. The phrase, and this is not of yourselves. This is a major sticking point that needs to be addressed because it comes up quite frequently in the discussions that Christians have about Calvinistic theology. The text actually says, and this is, the word is is inserted, it's an ellipsis, it's the, the, the verb to be, but it's legitimate to insert it there. This is not of yourselves. So what is being referred to there? What is the this refer to? Now, if you look up here for just a moment, just look at the colors, and I think we can, we can understand this fairly readily. But, but before we do that, we, we need to remember that, that the Greek language is similar to, say, French or to, to German. Actually, it's more similar to Russian in the sense that the Greek language has three genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter. Okay? English has really lost that. We have the vestiges of it, and the only, the only example I can think of off the top of my head is, is um, the word uh, ship, for example. If you're, out on the, if you're out on your boat and you want to refer to that vo- boat by a pronoun or a, a naval ship you know, by a pronoun, would you usually say, let's turn him around, let's turn it around, or let's turn her around? Her. Why? I have no idea. It's just... It's just come into the English language. But if you speak Spanish, and I know some of you do, or if you speak French, and I know some of you do, and speak them both, um, uh, certainly if you speak Russian, you, you know that other languages have gender for everything. And it all has to match up. And certainly Greek is one of those languages that has, there, there's three genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter. And it's not all, there's not always necessarily a rhyme or reason why something is in a particular gender. It just happens to be. But when it comes to to pronouns, pronouns must match up with that which they refer in gender and in number. Not necessarily in case, but in gender and in number. With that in mind, look at, look at the board either over here or over here. I'll point it out. The word this, again, for by grace, this was the word for grace, you have been saved through faith in the red here. And this, that's the word for this here, not of yourselves. And we inserted the word is, which is legitimate. This is not of yourselves. Over here you see, this is the word for grace. You have been saved through faith. And the word this. Now I've got the word this in green to, to denote the fact that this particular word, with regard to its gender, is in the neuter. Okay, hang in there with me. This won't be hard. This is in a neuter. All right. Now some people would like to propose that this word refers to the word that came right before it, the faith. Okay? So you'll, you'll talk to some that are deeply involved in Reformed theology, not all, certainly not all. I mean, like D.A. Carson are very Reformed, but they recognize they can't, they can't come up with some of their stuff from this passage. And they'll say, well, what, what is being referred to is this means the faith. So the faith is not of yourselves. The faith is a gift of God. And what they would proposes that God decides sovereignly to give some people faith and to, give, to, to withhold that from other people. They say, yes, you're saved by grace through faith, but God decides who gets the faith. And they use this passage as their central arguing point to say that God is the one who divvies out the faith. Now, we're not talking about the ideas like common grace and efficacious grace where God makes faith possible. 
or what God enables you to believe. Some people would say, God sovereignly chooses to give faith to these people and to withhold it from these people, and they do it based upon this passage. Let me show you in three minutes or less why that cannot be done. It just can't be done. And I have to tell you, pretty much any first-year Greek student, or let's say at least second-semester first-year Greek student, should be able to tell you why as well. It baffles me that great minds of the past have, have refused to acknowledge it. It's a grammatical problem. Okay, tuto is neuter. The word for faith is a feminine noun. All right? Now, these pronouns have to agree with their antecedent in gender and number. Now, this is a three-minute Greek lesson, but you've already had it. If, if the antecedent of a pronoun has to agree in gender and number, and this is neuter, and this is feminine, the word for faith is feminine, could the word this be referring back to the faith? No, you're right. Say no. It can't. <laughs> it, it cannot. can't do it. Some people would say, well, it must be referring back to grace. Well, that's a better try, and in principle, it actually might be. I'm going to tell you why in a minute. But that's also feminine. So specifically, it can't be referring back to that. Well, what about the word, uh, you have been saved? Well, actually, that's masculine. It's a participle, but it's, uh, participles have gender. That's masculine. So specifically, it can't apply to any one of these three in terms of just specifically, but above all, it can't apply to faith. Just by the rules of grammar. So that whole thing from the Reformation, that God gives certain people faith and withhold it from other people, based upon this passage, goes right out the window. And by the way, those who are really scholars would, would really, this is not up for, people don't argue this, by the way. Once you understand the structure, at least I've never seen anybody try to successfully argue it. So it cannot refer back to faith. That throws that out. That's our responsibility. Yes, God enables us to believe, but it's not, the faith is not the gift. So if faith is not the gift, and if none of these are neuter, what in the world could it refer to? That's a legitimate question, isn't it? Well, Paul has this habit of using a neuter pronoun when he finishes a large section of material to refer back to all that he has mentioned before. In other words, to the entirety of the process. And a neuter pronoun can do that in Greek. It can do that. So you can't say it's the faith or grace or even this word that's a participle of sozo. But you can say, based upon the rules of Greek grammar, that the this there refers to the entirety of the process Probably going all the way back to verse 4. And remember those two very special words? But God. Okay? Exactly. You remember he seated us with him in the heavenly places and, and all that. What he's saying is, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this or that is not of yourselves. See, the whole thing, the but God part, you know what's of ourselves? Verses 1 through 3. We got ourselves in that mess. But everything from verse 4 on is reflective of this word, tuto. You see? A neuter pronoun can do that. And Paul does it frequently in his letters. 
Does that make sense? At least a, a little bit. From a, if, it, if, it, if nothing else makes sense, just take this, the this or the that, whichever way you want to translate it. Cannot refer to faith, at least not by itself, because faith is feminine, this is neuter. It just breaks the rules of Greek grammar. It doesn't work that way. You know, to editorialize this, we're almost finished. It really baffles me sometimes how theologians can make something that's relatively simple into something that's way too difficult. Theology is really not that hard. I would like for you to, I'd like for you to believe that it's really, really, really hard. So, I mean, so you'd think more of me, uh, but it's really not that hard. And neither is this passage. The solution then is pretty straightforward. So this word refers back to the entirety of the process that started at verse 4. But really, remember I told you that this is a summary of what's happened from, from verse 4 on, and I said it'll be important later? Well, what well, is? So you, you could say that this word here summarizes all of this, just so you understand that it not only summarizes this, but this is a summary of what was taking place from verse 4. Two summaries. Okay. All right. Again, the faith that is the human responsibility carries no inherent merit. It's simply a recognition on the part of the sinner that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, and that that individual is trusting him and no one else or nothing else to gain him favor with God, least of which would be his own goodness, least of which would be his own good works. Therefore, if there's no inherent merit in faith, and salvation is all a result of grace, we have nothing to brag about. Verse 9, not a result of works. So what we have is a contrast between grace and works, but we also see a contrast between faith and works. They're, at the, they're on the opposite sides of the wall. They are not synonymous. Works have nothing to do. Our works have nothing to do with earning God's grace or receiving God's grace. It's simply by faith. You know, we have as those who have trusted Christ, and I'm one, I will, I will stand on that. I, I gladly tell you that. I was fixing to say I proudly tell you that, but that would kind of negate the whole passage. Wouldn't it? <laughs> but, I, but I gladly tell you that. I and you, we together have simply received a gift that others have refused. It doesn't make me any better than anybody else. I've just received something that God provided. You know, God is the one that's good. God is the one that's great. God is the one that saves. So don't get this thing mixed up, but go back to Dr. Leitner's quote. God saves. Faith doesn't save. God saves us on the basis of our faith. But remember, God is the one performing the action. The merit in this whole salvation process it belongs to the giver of the gift, not the one who receives it.